Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. It is episode 159. Today we're going to be talking about the atonement. This is the area when you talk about the doctrines of grace in which there is the most disagreement. What is the nature of the atonement? And I'm going to argue today that particular redemption is really clear, but one of the reasons why the waters are muddy is because we don't look at all the intentions of Christ on the cross. Jesus came to do all that he was wanting to do on the cross, and he did it. He didn't just try to make atonement. It was a real and actual atonement. But this atonement was for three big purposes. It was to save the bride. So he died in a saving way for the bride. He died for the world. That's even the unregenerate world in a certain way. And he also died for the cosmos, that the cosmos might be restored and that the curse would be lifted. So let's go and pray. We're going to talk about it and I hope it ends up being helpful for you. Lord, we need wisdom and direction. I thank you for the atonement. I thank you for the cross of Christ. And John Stott reminds us in his book, at the very beginning of the book, that every generation has to recover the objectivity of the cross. We have to rediscover it because we're so prone to think that power for salvation comes from the person to the cross, not from the cross to the person. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came and you actually did save your people from their sins, that it was an actual atonement, that it wasn't just an attempt and it wasn't a, a thing that made us savable. But as Spurgeon said, you, you died to save men, not to make us savable. We thank you for that. Lead this time. I trust you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Hope you're well. The doctrines of grace are glorious. And today, I really want to focus in on this idea of the atonement. And people, when you start throwing around the words limited or unlimited, a lot of times, like I said, the waters get muddied because we want to say that the cross was only for one group of people. There was a book years ago that came out. It's only like five or six years ago now, maybe a little longer. But it was a book that was given out by Together for the Gospel. If you went Together for the Gospel in like 2014 or 12, we went and we got the book From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, and it's a book on definite atonement. In a lot of ways, the book was good, but what the book was really frustrating with, in fact, if you go look on the reviews on Amazon, I think mine's the number one critical review on there. The reason I reviewed it in a critical manner is because the book fails to recognize the what the cross of Christ did for the non-believer and for the cosmos. It only narrows in on what cross of Christ means for the bride and that definite atonement. But over and over again in that book, what was raised to the surface and it bubbled up to the top was statements like this. John Piper said this, many others said this as well. Certainly the cross of Christ has implications for the world and whatever they meant by the world. But then they would go on and they would critique everybody that was trying to give an answer for what those implications are. And their apologetic back was, well, this is a book on a definite atonement. It wasn't on other benefits or the peripheral benefits of the cross. It was only on the benefits of the cross for the bride, for the church, and the definite atonement that took place. But why bring up those questions if you don't address it? And so today, I want to address that, and I want us to look at this. And I think one of the, uh, when you flatten out the atonement and you say that Jesus only died for the elect, you have all these other passages of Scripture that make it seem like that the cross was for more than just the elect. And then if you say, well, the, the, the cross is unlimited and Jesus died for this, you know, in the same way for everybody, then you're left wondering, well, how in the world did Jesus die for his bride? It says he gave himself up for her. So how did that happen? And you get these questions about, uh, 
particular redemption because we find even in the the invitation to receive communion, the Lord's table is uh, Jesus whose blood was spilled for the many. And you get these partic- this particular language, this specific language that we're going to see here in a minute. So I think if you put them all together, you get to see that there's multiple intentions in the atonement and Jesus came to accomplish different things on the cross and he actually did it. It, it was the, the, the work of Christ was not subjective. So pastors, you're thinking through this and you're preaching the cross. I think it's important for us to understand the nature of the atonement and how full it is, that it's not just one way or one thing that Jesus accomplished. Now, books that have been helpful for me, I used to read a book on the atonement at the beginning of each year. So I've read several books on the atonement. My favorite books on on the cross of Christ and its implications, uh, it's a two-volume set by George Smeaton, and I've encouraged many guys over the years, I cannot encourage you enough to buy this book. It's the Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement, and it's Christ's Doctrine of the Atonement. And these books, so Christ's Doctrine of the Atonement, would be first, and it just goes through every single passage in the Gospels, and then every single passage in the New Testament on the Atonement, and it just does exegetical work on it, and it just looks at it, and it's a phenomenal work by George Smeaton. He was a 19th century theologian, and he's done some great work on the Holy Spirit as well, but George Smeaton, the Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement, Christ's Doctrine of the Atonement. And then after that is John Owen's classic work, The Death of Death and the Death, Death of Christ. That's my second favorite work on that. And uh, so those those if you get those three books, you're going to be pretty solid on your understanding of the atonement. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to break this down, and we're going to look at the cross for the bride, the cross for the world, and the cross for the cosmos. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. Three, three parts, and then pastors, you're thinking through this. Just be, I mean, consider these passages and what these passages mean, and I think you'll see what I'm talking about, that there's multiple intentions to the cross of Christ, and Jesus accomplished all of what he intended to accomplish. Matthew chapter 1, we see Christ's death for the bride or for his people. Matthew chapter 1, this is in verse 21. Here's what it says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the first announcement of Jesus and what he's going to do in the Gospels. And this is what it says. He will save his people from their sins. Now, for the unlimited atonement person, or just the person out there that's just got this general idea of a general atonement, they really have to reckon with passages like this. You know, how many times have you heard people, crazy people like Leighton Flowers or somebody talk about the atonement and say, all means all, and that's all all ever means, or something like that. And you get to this passage, and it's very clear that the language is specific. It says he will save his people from their sins. It does not say he's going to save all people from all of their sins or the world from their sins. It very specifically says his people, their sins. That's important to note because Jesus came to actually do something for real people. Jesus' blood came out with names on it. That's how I've said it earlier. The the atonement was really substitutionary. Now, we, we see this, this chain reaction that happens when we talk about the doctrines doctrines of grace. You start with the sinfulness of man, and then you start with the choice of God. God chose a bride for his son. And then you see the order in, in which this happens, because there's unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the work of redemption. And you see that his people, their sins, that group, his people, their sins, is the group that God elected, that chose to save, that chose for his bride. We see this in Matthew chapter 26 as well. Every, every time when we go to take the Lord's table, this is one that we always go to, the Passover. And during Passover, here's what Jesus said. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it all of you for it's the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is one of the reasons I say that I think this particular doctrine of grace, I said election is very, very clear as we talked about last week, but 
I actually think the, the most disputed point of the doctrines of grace is the issue of the atonement. And honestly, guys, I think this is, again, this is really probably the most easily defendable point because you have passages like this that are just, I mean, it's hard to not see the clarity here. Pour out, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Many, not for everybody. It says for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And when you combine this with chapter 1, verse 21, you see that there is this, his people from their sins and for the many. This is the same group of people for an actual atonement. This is not so that their sins may be one day forgiven if they trust in me, as if the power of forgiveness is tapped into in some future date. This is a powerful atonement that actually produces results. It affects the future. It affects the past. It really is incredible what Christ has done on the cross because it actually is the forgiveness of sins. This is where we find our atonement. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, you look back to the cross and there you see that you were purchased, that these the, your forgiveness of sins is there. That's where it's at. And the reason you're forgiven now is because this ripple effect down through the history of the world, it finally hit into you. And it's not that you tapped into the cross, but it's the work of Christ that tapped into you. It's powerful. Then think about Ephesians chapter 5. All right? And this is how this is woven even into natural law and the way things work. We recognize this as we look around and we have this conscience deep within us that knows in marriage, a man and a woman are to be devoted to one another, that a man's commitment to his wife should be different than his commitment to any other woman. Okay, so if a man said, honey, I love you and I love every other woman just the exact same way that I love you, we would find that very strange. Yes? Yes. Valerie wants to know if he can do movie rest today or if he needs to take a nap. I was thinking maybe we should do movie rest because I feel like he goes to bed easier. Movie rest. I don't Are you okay with that? This. Okay. The Amazing Spider-Man, that's the okay one, right? Yeah. Okay, we're going to do that. Okay, I'm back. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, And the foundation for marital love, the foundation for our conscious level impulse that says a man should be devoted to one woman, even in the world today, well, clown world is making some crazy things up, but even in the world today, there still is, there's honor given to a man devoted to a woman for his life. Here's what Ephesians chapter 5 says, starting verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for his bride. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love everybody, but it does mean that the love of Christ is uniquely given to his bride. Love your wife, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And how did he love her? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her in a way he didn't give himself up for everybody else. This is particular love. And this is why, I mean, this is the foundation for a husband's devotion for his wife. It'd be asinine to suggest that every husband should love every woman like he loves his wife. No, because he should be particularly devoted to her. He loves her because this is woven into how we exist as human beings because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Jesus specifically and particularly gave himself up for his bride. He loved her and gave himself up for her. He loves her in a special way. This is an extra special love that the rest of the world has no claim on. But if you're the bride of Christ, the body of Christ has this claim. And these passages have to be reckoned with. For those out there that despise particular redemption. You have to reckon with passages like this, and you have to be able to say both and. And for those who love, like myself, particular redemp redemption, when you get into Revelation chapter 5 and you see that he purchased a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that all the wokesters love, quoting about racial diversity and racial harmony and all that stuff, which is absolutely true, but the main point of that passage is that there was an actual atonement, that Jesus actually purchased people for God from every tribe, tongue, and language. That's particular, and people have to reckon with these passages. And so, Pastor, if you've been working through this and been on the fence, I just want to invite you into embracing a multiple-intentioned 
understanding of the cross. We see clearly that Jesus died in a saving way for his bride. These passages make it really clear. But then we have these passages like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we, we bump into this and we think, okay, now how do we make sense of this? And if we try to make it, well, Jesus only died for his bride, we're going to have real trouble when it comes to passages like Ephesians 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled, reconciling the world, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we get to this passage and we're told that he is reconciling the world to himself. And that means that there's some way that the death of Christ is for the world. Not in the same way that it's for the bride, but some way that it is for the world because it says it. Now, we might not know all the ins and outs behind that, but I think it has to have procured something for the world. If the world is in some way reconciled to the Lord Jesus, but not actually saved and redeemed, we're not universalists. And by the way, universalists actually have a better understanding of the atonement than those who believe in a general atonement or a universal atonement, because they actually don't believe that that atonement saves. It's not a real atonement. Universalists believe in a real atonement. They just wildly miss that the atonement was not for everybody in the same way. How is it that Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 tells us that the that God sends rain on the just and the unjust? Verse 45, it says this, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why is common grace everywhere in the world? Why is it everywhere in the world? Why do non-believers not experience immediate judgment right now for their sins? Why do they get to breathe? Why is it that they get to hear the gospel preached to them? Why is it that they get people like the Apostle Paul or us imploring them, be reconciled to God? Why do they get to receive that kind of grace? Why do they get to receive that kind of thing? And the answer, I think, is because Jesus died for them. Not in a saving way, but he died for them that they may to procure delayed judgment, to secure common grace to all men, to secure rain on the just and the unjust. The evil farmer gets rain on his land just like the godly farmer does. So I still don't know all the ins and outs of this, but I do know in these passages where the atonement is said to have been over the whole world, I think it means that's for the world. And by the way, that's my Great Commission hope. My Great Commission hope is in passages like that, that the world is actually being reconciled to God. And one day, what's going to happen with the Great Commission and the nations being discipled is going to be a result of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Perfect salvation for the elect and the salvation of the world, to where the world is actually going to be saved. Doug Wilson has some good things to say about this. I've not actually read a book from him on the atonement, but he should write it, because he's got some good thoughts that I've heard in passing from here there on this. But the reason I'm so confident in the Great Commission is because Jesus actually died for the world. There's other implications, and I'm still working through those things, but we have to say that Jesus died in a saving way for his bride, and then with passages like like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and the world being reconciled, we have to in some way say that Jesus died for the world, Because it said that he died to reconcile the world to himself. But then also, we see this third intention with the cross. And these are just intentions that I know about. I'm I'm sure that the work of the cross is infinite in measure. And it it certainly is. It's infinite in measure. And so the implications could keep being discovered and rolled out. And you keep digging, you keep finding more. And I think probably for all eternity, as we're worshiping the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, we're going to discover more and more of the glory. The glory that is the cross of Christ. But when we get into the Colossians, 
I love this because we see that the whole cosmos has been reconciled to God, that God has made peace through the blood of Christ. This comes from chapter 1, starting verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So here's the connection here, the blood of the cross and peace by the blood of the cross, that's atonement. And what did he do in that atonement? Well, he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, all things. Jesus died for all things, to reconcile all things. This is another post-millennial hope passage, I think. And, I mean, for goodness sake, the consummation of all things that we all believe, no matter what your eschatology is. Our hope that things are going to be right in this world in the end comes from the atonement of Christ. Because Jesus died, in some sense, for the entire cosmos. Everything on heaven, everything on earth is now at peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, this is incredible. It really is. The, the cross of Christ really is inexhaustible, and there's multiple intentions in it. So if you get so narrowed down in your reform understanding of soteriology and in your love for the doctrines of grace that you have no way to say that Christ died for the world, Christ died for the cosmos, Christ in some, in some sense died for every single man, woman, or child who's ever been born. If you can't say that, well, then you're going to have some real big holes in your understanding of the atonement. And those who are arguing with you are going to be like, but what about this passage? And what about that passage? But if you see these passages and say, well, we're just going to take them all. They're all good. And they all mean something. We may not know all the implications from all these meanings, but we see right there, right in these passages, something very clear that Jesus indeed, Jesus indeed died for his bride in a saving way. He died for the world in a non-saving way to procure common grace, and he died for the cosmos. And because of the blood of Christ that's been spilled, all things are going to be reconciled to God. That is incredible. That is glorious. Guys, I hope this has been helpful. Please share this, like this, uh, leave a rating and review like I always ask you to do. And I hope things are going well. I really do. Hope you're having a great Monday and I hope you have a great rest of your week.